Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Well, welcome. And in today's episode of the Afternoon Light podcast, I'm joined by Ian McAllister, who is a distinguished professor of political science at the Australian National University and has, since 1987, been conducting the Australian Electoral Study Survey after every single election. So really, Ian, what an amazing contribution you've made to the flourishing of Australian democracy. So thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Well, it's great to have you on the Robert Menzies Institute's podcast. And um, I think it's so interesting to reflect on the changing nature of Australian democracy since the Menzies era and his retirement in 1966. Could you tell me, to start with, how do you characterise the main differences in voter behaviour from the Menzies era to, to today? Are there, are there strong differences? Are we a very different people? 70 years on? It's almost as easy to say what, what hasn't changed. What hasn't changed really is the way we vote. We still vote with a paper and pencil. <laughs> Until relatively recently, we all voted on the same day. Since 2016, there's been early voting. The technology and the way in which we vote is the thing that's constant. Virtually everything else has changed. So Political parties, as you mentioned, have changed the way people identify with them, people's trust in the political process. Leaders have changed, the role of leaders, the way information is disseminated through election campaigns has changed, how different groups within the population engage with the political process, for example, younger people and so on. So there's really been huge changes. And probably what I would say is that the... The major institutions in Australia, the political institutions, electoral institutions, really haven't kept pace with a lot of these changes, not just in Australia, I should say, but a lot of other countries. So we still have a a 19th century institution in terms of the electoral system, somewhat modified over the years, but everything else has changed. Yeah, I mean, it is amazing that we still use a paper and pencil to vote, um, just a sort of a basic kind of technical aspect of a democratic system. And of course, then have to count with real people. There's no automation. And uh, that, that's, that's despite the fact there have been various reviews about bringing in electronic voting. But I think people are people see all the downside risk and, and the, the upside risk just doesn't quite add up. Well, when we ask people in our surveys what would make it easier for you to vote, and we ask them questions about if you voted during the course of a week or electronic voting, things like that, the majority of people say they want electronic voting. Mm. On the other hand, when we ask people what form of voting do they most trust, it's paper and pencil. Yeah. Mm. So the technology has really not kept up in terms of convincing voters that this is actually the way to do it. There's two types of changes we need to look at. One is e-voting, which is simply turning up to a polling place, voting electronically rather than filling out a paper and pencil. That's actually quite 
widely used now around the world. The technology for that is pretty well established. It's been used in ACT elections and various other places in Australia, but it's used widely in Europe. The other one, which I think is going to be the big change in 15, 20 years, is iVoting, which is the ability to vote, say, on your smartphone, to vote remotely. And given that, you could really vote at any time during the course of an election campaign. At the present time, there's only one country in the world that uses high voting, and that's Estonia. They experimented with a few elections back. It worked quite well, and they've been using it ever since. Now, the interesting question about iVoting is we've had this trend towards early voting. So round about 40%, 42% of the population in 2019 had voted before polling day. Yeah. And I would have thought this time it'll probably be well over 50%. The nature of democratic accountability in election campaigns is that we all cast a vote on one single day and we make a decision about what the parties are offering us. Once you have lots of people voting during at different times during the course of an election campaign, you're sort of undermining that democratic accountability And it undermines the nature of election campaigns because political parties don't quite know when to release their policies. When do you have a leaders debate? Maybe if uh, 30% of people have already voted by week four or week five of the election campaign, what what would be the party strategy for that? Now, I actually think that I-voting is the answer to that because it would allow people to vote remotely but on one single day. Right. But as I said, yeah. people basically don't trust that at the moment. And I think it's about a decade or more away. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, we've well, recently had to trust our iPhones a whole lot more than we have in the past with um, our private information through the check-in requirements that the various state governments in Australia have imposed on people. And, you know, we've basically giving up information about where we're you know our movements where we shop where we eat where you know where where we borrow a book or or whatever what we do you know some days I was checking in maybe 20 times and that that is private information I mean okay your voting intention is a little bit different from your shopping preferences but still that that sense that we you know you do trust your iPhone your smartphones a, a, a hell of a lot banking apps all those sort of different apps why not why not voting well i think this will change um it will take some time to do but i also think just uh, just talking about trusting iphones trusting government and so on we do have a very compliant political culture yes so we've got a utilitarian political culture which is focuses on the greatest happiness the greatest number essentially very benthamite yeah. rather than a rights culture which is maybe lockean focusing mm. in individual rights and freedoms and that's why compulsory voting works so well and again we ask in our surveys uh, do you support compulsory voting or would you prefer voluntary voting we find that consistently three-quarters of voters support compulsory voting. And the the proportion of voters that would uh, still vote under a voluntary voting system is well in the 80s. People say to me, well, that really can't be true and so on. And there are international examples of that because the Netherlands used to have compulsory voting. They abolished it in 1971 
their turnout dropped to about 80, 83%, I think it was. So our turnout would still be internationally one of the highest. But we do have a very compliant political culture. And I rather suspect if, um, if there was a bipartisan agreement to trial e-voting and i-voting and so on, and people basically got the hang of it and they had a degree of support for it, I actually think it would it would happen, but it's probably a couple of generations away. Yeah, it will be a generational question too, I would have thought. Um, you know, the millennials down, I think, will be fairly relaxed, but, but you know, baby boomers and above might might start to think, mm, I'm not sure if I trust, uh, you know. <laughs> Even I'm, I'm Gen X, I think there'd be some in my generation who'd be a bit leery-eyed of it. Just um, a final question, though, on, on I-voting and e-voting, Ian. Um, in Australia, we have compulsory voting, but my understanding is it's att- compulsory to attend the poll. So you have to have your name crossed off, but you don't actually have to vote. You could write a rude word. In fact, I've scrutinied on occasion and there have been a few rude, rude words and some interesting uh, illustrations on ballot papers um, that I've seen from time to time. So you, you, that's the tricky thing, isn't it, with with an electronic vote? How do you spoil your ballot paper electronically? Yes, I think that that actually is an issue. The proportion of people, it, it probably has to be said, that um, really spoil their ballot paper for political reasons because they don't like the process or they don't like any of the candidates is really very, very small. Yeah. Most people spoil their ballots in Australia because they make a mistake, quite mm-hmm. simply. And that's not unreasonable because you've got very complex electoral systems, some of the most complex in the world. You've got different levels of electoral system between different types of government. Uh, You've got compulsory voting, so you're driving everybody to the polls. And there's, as as I mentioned in our surveys, about 15% of people probably wouldn't bother to vote. And then on top of that, you've got a very large proportion of non-English speaking migrants as well. So I'm actually surprised the level of spoiled votes isn't higher. Mm. The number of people who, as I say, spoil their votes for political reasons, very small. One of the things people have trialled around the world is having a against all options. So that would be one of the options on the ballot paper. Um, that was something that was trialled in Russia in the very early days of democratisation. And on two occasions, against all, actually won the ballot. <laughs> and then they had to have a, a re-ballot. There and they abandoned democracy. <laughs> and then they, they abandoned the against all option because they thought that was too dangerous. But there are other countries around the world that do actually use it. And it gives people the option of saying, well, we don't want any of these candidates. I rather suspect that wouldn't be required. The benefit of uh, electronic voting is that it would really cut down on spoiled votes and we have these incredible Senate ballot papers, which yeah. are some of the largest ballot papers in the world. <laughs> Whenever there's an election here, I always get various emails from my colleagues overseas that study electoral systems, and they say to me, can you get me one of these, <laughs> etc. They frame them and put them on their wall, oh, yeah. because these, these you, you don't see anything like this anywhere in the world. No, they can, they can be a metre long, can't they? They're just incredible. Yeah, extraordinary. Um, Ian, just um, wanted to move our discussion on to political campaigning per se and we're, of course, on the cusp of an election being called here in Australia and, uh, of course, about to be, depending on where you live, inundated with campaign 
techniques and materials and I guess some people will try and avoid it at all costs but uh, those who are politically interested will live and breathe it for the next few weeks. In in Menzies' day, so in the 50s and 60s, was was political campaigning less sort of presidential than it is now? Very much see the Prime Minister or the opposition leader front and centre of the campaign, for better or worse, depending on their popularity, of course. Uh, what about back in the Menzies era? Well, the big change that's happened over the last oh, 30, 40 years has been the personalisation of politics and the focus on leaders. Mm. Most of that is being driven, uh, as you would assume, by the electronic media. Uh, particularly television. Uh, So you really didn't get that in the past. It's probably worth just going back a step because Australian elections are really quite different from elections you find in other countries. The two functions of political parties are to mobilise and convert, to mobilise people to turn out to vote and then to convert them to vote for your cause. Because of compulsory voting in Australia, political parties don't have to mobilise. That's true. So they focus on conversion Now, in Menzies' day, conversion was done through newspapers, radio, through town meetings, leafleting, things like that. With the rise of television, conversion has become a national function for political parties. So they do it through television, but also, of course, more recently, it happens through social media. And we've done quite a bit of research in the election study asking people about how they follow the election, what what are the sources of information and so on. And 2019, for the very first time, uh, the greatest proportion of people said they got their campaign information from the internet rather than from television, radio or newspapers. And this is really a sea change. It's also a generational change as well, because uh, the vast majority of these people tend to be young. Political parties are getting a bit more adept at all of this. So they're now micro-targeting through social media. It's also worth saying that this is something which has benefited independents and minor parties to a much greater degree than the major parties because the barriers to entry uh, are much lower. 20, 30 years ago, television, you had to have a lot of money to have television advertisements. These days, somebody sitting in, a, in their bedroom can set up a social media site and start micro-targeting and contacting people on Facebook and so on. So that is a major sea change. And it means that the major parties and also the minor parties and independents can identify very small groups of voters and try and uh, convert them to their cause. And that's something that's never happened before. And really the sort of long-term consequences of that are really still being worked out because it's still relatively new. Especially for our two-party political system, which, you know, the major parties will, of course, advocate the benefits of. It gives you a clear choice, you know, a stable a stable option. We have very, very rarely had uh, minority governments here in Australia. I mean, you, know, you go to Israel, Italy, they have coalitions of sort of 11 parties and, you know, it can fall apart at the drop of a hat or, you know, I know in the Netherlands, didn't they? In Belgium, they, they kept having to have elections to, to try and get a government formed. Whereas in Australia, it's... It's it's very clear. It's it's either the the blue team or the red team, uh, and the same same in the United States. But but with the uh, are independents then more of a force now than they've ever been in in Australian politics. I mean, there have been independents 
you know, in times gone by, and fa- famous ones and less famous ones? Well, because we have a majoritarian electoral system, that really creates normally a winner. In fact, almost always there's yeah. one party that has a winner. Where people tend to protest against the major parties in terms of um, their vote, the split ticket voting, as we call it. So they vote for a different party in the Senate as mm. against the House of Representatives. And that trend has been increasing considerably. It's now around about almost one in three voters vote for a different party in the Senate as against the House of Reps. That in itself wouldn't be a particular problem in terms of governing, except the Senate we have is very powerful. So it's one of the three or four most powerful upper houses in the world. It can introduce legislation, stop legislation and so on, very much like the American Senate or the German upper house or the Swiss upper house. So that can have a major effect on governing uh, together with having three-year parliaments, which is a, a separate issue as well. On your point about political parties, having two major parties and so on, having election campaigns that introduce a whole series of issues Um, which can be generated through social media and so on, is really not something the two major parties like. When you have two major parties competing, what they like competing on is a single economic dimension. Mm. So you get one party more in favour of collectivism, another party more in favour of private enterprise. And that's a, a debate that's bargainable. It means that it can be moved, there can be nuances of all of this and so on. Parties can move to the centre, they can move slightly off to the uh, the more extreme ends of it, but it's essentially bargainable. Once you get other issues being introduced, and classic issues tend to be things like abortion, same-sex marriage, things like that, moral issues, euthanasia is another example. These tend to cross-cut the support that the major political parties have, yeah. and it's very dangerous, and it's why the two major parties always try and constrain debates to economic issues, management of the economy, spending on health, education, uh, issues like that. Independence, minor parties quite often will take particular stances and moral issues. Yes, that's right. Run on one particular issue and not have a view on on anything else. Um, There's certainly um, historically been a a sense that that some voters were completely and utterly rusted onto a political party and uh, and the party could rely on the so-called base. I understand from reading your research that that has really come down quite dramatically, this sort of, you know, the, the rely... I think it was 14%, was it, in the last election, voted always for the same political party. That's tough for the for the political parties because they, they don't have the, the nice sort of buffer of who, who can you take for granted. Why do you think that's happened, Ian? Is that related to the independence, to um, the rise of the internet, social media, a more educated voter? Well, I think it's related to all of those things. It's related to underlying changes in Australian society, not just in Australia, but but internationally, you mentioned education. You've got huge proportions of younger people going through university education, which gives them a different outlook on life, mm. makes them much more critical citizens. So we tend to call them uh, instrumental voters in the sense that they're looking at party policies. They're making quite informed judgments about policies that are going to benefit them. 
Uh, in the past, the majority of voters tended to be expressive. So they tended to have a, a quite emotional commitment to a political party and they just voted for that party during the course of their whole voting lives. And you did mention the statistics on uh, voting volatility, which is really worth repeating. When the surveys started being conducted in the late 1960s by Don Aitken, and we continued after 1987, around about three out of four voters never changed their vote from the very first election they voted in to the last election before they died. So there was huge stability. These days, that figure is around about 45, 46 percentage points, and I would have thought it would have declined uh, a bit, or will decline a bit at the next election. So you've got a huge degree of voting volatility in there. You've got many more critical citizens who are looking at policies. They're much less inclined to follow the partisanship of their parents, which was the the major thing that was determining people's voting behaviour 30, 40 years ago. Uh, They're looking at policies and they also tend to be cross-pressured. So we've had the rise of identity politics So people see themselves as being members of all sorts of different groups. So you might identify with an ethnic group. You might identify with a particular income group, a professional group, trade union, something like that. And this is creating a series of cross pressures within the election. Uh, 50 years ago, uh, if we looked at class voting, it was blue collar versus white collar. And you could add in a very small proportion of people who were involved in farming These days, you've got multiple class groups. You've got people that uh, are involved in different social networks. You've got people who are in traditional blue-collar occupations that supervise other people in the workplace who are self-employed, who earn quite a lot of money, who own uh, assets like self-managed super funds, housing. The class structure these days is diversified to a huge extent and that's really a major change and of course it makes it very difficult for the political parties when they're crafting policies and we saw that in the last election when Labour's policies were really increased taxation to affect the assets that that people had built up over time, superannuation, um, uh, housing, homes, people had bought for an investment, things like that. And, of course, that was one of the major factors which uh, affected the Labour vote, why they, they didn't win the election. And it was really ignoring this really complex nature of the class structure and people's economic interests. That is really fascinating how Australian society has become a whole lot more complicated. I mean, you know, at a very basic level, Australians, I think, would like to think we don't have you know, we're a classless society and we don't have the, the sort of rigid hierarchies like um, our, our friends, say, in the United Kingdom in, in Britain. But Menzies' whole political philosophy, creation of the Liberal Party, was designed around these, these so-called forgotten people, the, the middle class, the people who, who weren't part of organised labour, trade union, that sort of working class, and weren't part of a, a group of vested interests, be it you know, country, um, agriculture. They were you know, the shopkeepers, the, the sort of everyday people that, that he, he spoke to and, and clearly it was a, an effective form of rhetoric to, to galvanise a, a very significant group of people in Australia to support him and his government for, for many, many years over. 
does so you, is really we we can't say we have a, a easily say we have a middle class anymore. I mean, I know this has sort of changed over time. We've had Tony's Tradies, Scott Morrison's Quiet Australians, list goes on. The Howard Battlers. Uh, so it, it's hard for a political party to identify a single a single group or or a single kind of class of society that it can rely on for votes or look to win the votes of. Yes, that's right, and it makes it very difficult in terms of party strategy, and mm. it's one of the reasons why political parties these days are very wary about putting forward a series of policies which are going to benefit uh, one part of society rather than another. And again, in our surveys, we find that an increasing proportion of people see no difference between the two major political yeah. parties in terms of policies. And I think that's quite right, that they, they are essentially campaigning on what we call valence politics, which is... We all agree everybody should have a job. We all agree that tax should be lowered. Uh, we all agree that um, the country should do well as possible economically. And the real issue is competence, which political party is would be more competent in uh, achieving those goals. So the debate is a bit less about policy itself, about the goals. It's a bit more about the competency that the political leaders and so on have in achieving that. And that, again, brings us back to political leaders and the importance that they have these days in terms of people empathising with them and having a sense of trust and a belief that they can actually deliver the various things that voters actually want. It's interesting, the the question of trust, because you hear the both both sides of politics always questioning the, their opponent's leader for their trustworthiness, saying they're completely untrustworthy. And it's, I mean, I think voters probably end up rolling their eyes because they hear it so often. But, but that, that, that must resonate in their focus groups that, that if you, if you keep pushing this line that someone is untrustworthy, you can't trust them to, to manage the economy well or manage their health system well or the pandemic well. Then, as you say, you're, you've got to, as a voter, you're making a decision about, how well do the, can these people manage? And I know a criticism of some of our recent political leaders, I think on, on both sides, has been this is a managerial class. They're not full of vision and values and aspirational ideas. It's, it's about how well can I manage, you know, the country. May as well be managing a bank or a... <laughs> some large organisation. So it's it's different to the politics that, that I grew up with and, the, and, I, and I'm sure the politics you grew up with in where it was, it was a real competition between quite clear ideologies, quite clear different philosophical outlooks on how to, how to run society, would you say? Well, it's interesting you mention perceptions of leaders and so on because we've done a lot of research on that in the election study and we ask voters what sort of qualities they see in the leaders and what they think is important. There's a lot of international research on this as well. Basically, what voters want in leaders is trust and integrity. Mm. Uh, to a lesser degree, they want competence. They're not particularly interested in leaders that are charismatic or have a great deal of compassion or empathy. Trust and integrity are the two things they're looking for. So they want to have a party leader, prime minister there, who they can say can actually deliver. And one of the things we've seen in our surveys since we started asking this battery of questions in 1987 is 
the, the leaders from election to election um, exhibit less trust among voters. I mean, voters just don't see that in them. Now, there's an interesting question in there, whether voters are becoming more critical and they have greater expectations of leaders or whether the leaders we've got sort of post-hard, post-rud and so on uh, really aren't as good as the leaders we've had in the past. And I don't really know the answer to that question because it's very difficult to compare because you've got different leaders all the time. Sure. But you do see it very clearly in our surveys. There is this really incremental decline over the years Hard and to a lesser extent Rudd were the, the last two leaders that people thought they had a degree of trust in. And since then, it's declined considerably. For example, Bill Shorten in 2019 had the lowest rating for trust in any of the leaders we'd ever polled. Um, I think we polled about 30, 35 mm. over the years. But whether that's the leader is not as good or whether voters just want more, is an interesting question. I probably just should say that in terms of voters' expectations, um, again, we ask a question in our surveys about people's dependence on on the state or do they get some form of um, direct benefit. These days, round about 60% of people get a direct benefit from the government in terms of a pension, uh, family tax benefit, something like that. And that's really a huge change. I mean, the intervention of the state in people's lives in terms of giving them something directly. So people do really look at that mm. and they see that could be affected by a particular party in office and so on. And I'm sure that resonates with uh, how they view the political leaders. Yeah, that's really interesting, of course, in the context of the of the budget that was delivered earlier this week and the and the sort of sense that you might get get something if you vote for a certain party right in your hip pocket a, a cash payment or a tax deduction there are economic reasons for those for those uh, policies and the and the budget of course but that that also is um partly a political political tactic um, i'm interested in and sorry just going back to the class discussion that in your study showing more and more Australians identifying themselves as working class, which is is strange because I I don't think that that can be right in terms of you know the, the definition of working class is you're basically working in in unskilled or very semi skilled labour, whereas we have a highly skilled population, highly upwardly mobile. We have a, obviously. Um, a big take up of tertiary tertiary education, but also vocational education through apprenticeships. So, why is it that people are identifying more and more as working class? Um, is that a, a a change in the definition and how people people self identify? No, and that doesn't matter for voting intentions. Well, it's class self image. It's yeah. self image people have and. That's really something, I mean, Australia is essentially a very egalitarian uh, society without class distinctions. So when you use that idea of, say, somebody who's working class being manual worker and so on, or a tradie, something like that, um, most tradies would earn very much more than the average academic and so on. So, I mean, (laughs) all of these traditional class distinctions really don't matter anymore. So I take those class self-image distinctions really with a pinch of salt these Mm. days because I don't think they matter. What matters much more is the sort of social networks you have, how you use your money, if you 
put it into a particular asset. So things like trade union membership, the type of job you do, if you supervise other people in the workplace, these matter much less these days than yeah. they did in the past. It's, it's much more networks. It's much more how you use your money and things like, for example, share ownership in Australia is one of the highest in the world. It has been declining a bit since the GFC, but it's, uh, I think it's surpassed only these days by Switzerland and maybe one or two other countries. So popular capitalism, in the sense that Thatcher talked about it, has really taken off in Australia. And we drill into our surveys and look at that. We find uh, a large proportion of people that own shares, five or more shareholdings, uh, tend to be people that traditionally we might have thought of working class before tend to be tradies, skilled workers, things like that. And so you've observed um, this, this idea of asset-based voting, which, which speaks to what you were just um, uh, talking about then. So are people then really voting according to their financial interests or are we see, still seeing a, a philosophical approach to politics? It sounds like it might be the former rather than the latter. No, it's very much more an instrumental approach we saw that very much in 2016 when the Liberals put forward their policies for changing, for example, superannuation. Um, I don't think there was really an appreciation about how many people that actually affected. Uh, around about one in ten of the population on paper have a, a self-managed superannuation fund, according to the ATO. But we ask it in our surveys, it's about one in three. Wow. And of course, what it's affecting is people in a household. So you yourself may not have one, but somebody in your household, a parent or a sibling or something like that, may have one. So the political effects of that were much larger. And again, in 2019, when Labour put forward a series of policies to uh, tax investment assets, uh, such as houses and so on, that was affecting about one in three of the population. And again, disproportionately people who didn't necessarily have a, a civil public service job, something like that, with a defined benefit, but people who were relying on their own assets to create a superannuation. And you've probably observed in this election, both political parties have backed away very considerably from any changes to any of those. Just getting back to, you mentioned about economic voting, hip pocket nerve and so on. One of the things I've been sort of surprised by over the years, I mean, going back 30 years, actually, is the extent to which political parties believe that stuffing some money in people's pockets is going to change how they vote. We know from the research we've done, all of the international research, it doesn't work. Uh, so this is the direct cash payment rather than a, a sort of structural change? If you benefit people personally by a tax change or uh, you don't benefit by somebody by trying to take money away from them, it's not necessarily the thing that's going to affect their voting. It's what we call egocentric voting. Mm. The thing that will affect people's voting economically is whether or not they believe that change will benefit the national economy. So the mistake that Labour made in 2019, I think, was not linking their tax changes and saying this would actually be a benefit to the country as a whole. They didn't make that connection. And people just saw it as something that was not going to benefit the, the country at all, uh, it would have no benefit at all, and they didn't vote for them on that basis. 
voters are actually a lot smarter than uh, I often think politicians believe um, because they do look at national interests and national economy and they're a bit less interested in their own personal economic circumstances in all of that. And that comes back to the whole pork barrelling debate yeah. about putting money into electorates and so on. I've done research on that, looking at the sports rorts and so on. We find absolutely no effect for that whatsoever. And I was uh, intensely surprised by that. I thought I'd made a mistake in terms of my statistical modelling, went through it all, looked at all of that, could find no effect whatsoever. And it's just this belief that politicians have that if you benefit an electorate by putting some money in, that it's going to increase the vote. It's not true. Well, I can say from first-hand experience being a candidate in, in a hotly contested electorate, I didn't see grants to sporting clubs as shifting the dial at all or that type of local level grant. I think people were, as you said, they were interested in very big picture big picture issues or if it was a, an infrastructure spend, it, it needed to be one that, that touched a, a very large portion, you know, like a major road or a, you know, a hospital or a, um, something that was, that was quite, uh, quite a large-scale project rather than just a, a netball court or, or, or the like. So it's, it's interesting that, 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 that um, those sort of small-scale grants, they've been with us for a long, a long time, but why are they done if they don't work? I mean, that's the question. Well, I think uh, <laughs> politicians don't read the academic literature. Oh, dear. And well, let's... Going, well, going well. back to <laughs> 1993 election, the unlosable election, um, I remember when there was various advertisements in the newspapers about how the tax changes would benefit you personally and you had a grid and you could look along at your salary uh, and look at the, the dollar amount. And I was aghast at this because it wasn't linking it to the benefit of the national economy. And of course, not surprisingly, the Liberals lost what was considered to be the unlosable election because they didn't make the connection between that change and how it would benefit the national economy. Labour made the same mistake in 2019 by the proposals they made to tax changes. It wasn't linked to how it would benefit the national economy. So you have two examples, 30 years apart. Um, if somebody read the academic literature going back to the 1980s, then they would find out uh, uh, what they should do and what they shouldn't do in terms of uh, the economy. I, I wondered if we could finish our, our discussion, in by talking about democracy itself, um, which, you know often attributed to Winston Churchill incorrectly that democracy is the worst system except for all the others. But the trust in democracy, satisfaction with democracy has declined. That's, that's you know, widely known these days throughout the Western world. Um, is, that, is that of concern? I think, you know, especially in the context of what we're seeing in, in Europe at the moment, um, authoritarian Russia invading invading Ukraine, this sort of real, once again, challenge between the authoritarian world and the, and the, the liberal democratic world. Are we, are we happy with our system? Does it, you know, the alternative looks pretty, pretty awful to me, but, but maybe, maybe for some people in Australia it looks okay. Should we be worried about that or, or is that just the ebbs and flows of democracy and we, you know, we'll, we'll get out okay the other side? 
It's probably worth saying that satisfaction with democracy in Australia is still high uh, if we compare it with a range of other countries. We had the high point in 2007 uh, when Labour was elected. And at that level, we were, along with Denmark, Sweden, various Scandinavian countries. Since then, it's declined consistently at each election, but we're still at the halfway point. Uh, If we compare the advanced democracies, we're in the middle The interesting thing about people's perceptions of democracy in Australia is that we don't necessarily trust politicians, and we can see that in our surveys, uh, increasing proportion of people don't trust politicians and so on. But we still have a very strong sense of efficacy. So our sense that we would be treated as well as anybody else, this sense of egalitarianism, is as strong as it's ever been. Mm. If you look at the data in the United States or in various European countries, both trust and efficacy have declined. In our case, only trust has declined. And again, when we drill down into a lot of this and look at it in our surveys, people still very much support the principle of democracy, uh, but they're a bit less keen on the process of democracy and how it actually operates. And that particularly pertains to the debate about younger people and democracy. And there's been a lot of debate over the last 10 years or so that younger people are turning away from democracy. It's not true. Mm. Uh, They have a strong sense about the principle of democracy and they see it as the best form of government. But they're a bit more hesitant about the process of democracy and how it actually works in practice. And I think a lot of that really comes back to the act of voting, the political parties, how they operate and so on, um, which are not really keeping pace with the sort of expectations that younger people have. And I guess for future generations, that's where there are reform opportunities of of how we vote, of how political parties operate, how they interact with with the public and and when they're in government, what sort of restrictions placed on them. So, um, well, a podcast for another day. But thank you so much, Ian, for your time today. Um, I appreciate this is entering a really, really busy period for you, um, but it it also is such an important time to have these discussions with, with someone of your huge experience in the way politics operates and the way people vote in Australia. Um, So I do thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for the invitation. The Afternoon Life podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.